listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Now will you please stand with me as we read scripture together. I'll be reading from the books of Acts, chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, if there is a God, I doubt very much that he cares much about what happens down here. Now, believe it or not, those words came out of your pastor's mouth, out of my mouth. Uh, Thankfully, it was not recently, uh, but in my late teens. I had grown up in the church, and uh, it never really, you know, it was just something I did. It never really felt like it fit, like it was a part of me. Still, I, you know, I looked pretty good on the outside, right? I, I, not boasting, but probably the kind of son many people would like to have. I went to a prestigious college and got good grades. I was in grad school and had a good career path planned out. I was generally a decent person law-abiding citizen for the most part. You know, there's no police record of anything as far as I know. But on the inside, I was unhappy. I was anxious. I was bitter. I was jealous of others. I was resentful of hurts and rejections that I'd experienced. But obviously something happened in me that changed that person, that changed me forever and is still changing me. How does that guy at 20 years old become this person at 56 years old. Well, the, the story that we're looking at today of Saul's conversion, the story of my conversion, it's not just about coming to know Jesus. It's about how God changes us and how he keeps on changing us, the work that God does in our lives. How does Saul of Tarsus, the greatest persecutor, the greatest enemy, the greatest hateful, hater of Christians, become Paul the Apostle, the greatest theologian and writer of the New Testament. What Saul found, what I found, what God hopes that you find and keep on finding, is that Jesus does what nobody and nothing else can do. The risen Jesus is the one who changes us, who changes us fundamentally. Jesus changes people. 
If, if he can change an angry, bitter young man into someone who loves Jesus and has committed his life to sharing the message of him, if, if he can change a, a violent persecutor and an oppressor and a hater of Christians, he can change you. Jesus profoundly, fundamentally changes Christians. And Christians don't just agree to a set of beliefs. They, we don't join a self-help group or sign up for a newsletter. Being a Christian means we are fundamentally changed. Meeting Christ changes people. And I think all of us deep down want change in that way. Maybe some of you are here because you checked us out online and, and you thought, eh, they're not too weird, I'll come back. Or maybe you've been following Jesus a long time. But I would guess that for all of us, there's some discontent, there's some disappointment at some level with who we are that doesn't line up with the people that we long to be, that, that we maybe even have a sense we were made to be. We all want change. We want transformation. How do we get it? That's what this story is about. It's a picture in this life of Saul of Tarsus. If you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 9. And uh, if you're using the Black Bibles uh, in front of you, we're on page 1090 or 1090, however you prefer to say it. We're going to start in verse 1 and look at the story and see what this tells us about transformation and change. Now, we can't take this one story and say that it's the way that God always works in people's lives. We, we don't think of God changing us in terms of, you know, steps or patterns, but it's probably better to think of it in terms of elements. There are elements that will be present if you really have come to know Jesus, if you have been converted, if you have been changed. And Saul's story pictures those elements for us. And it's these three elements that we're going to look at. Confrontation, reorientation, and re-identification. Jesus changes us through confrontation, reorientation, and re-identification. Those are the elements that are present if we're converted. And they will continue to repeat themselves in our lives as we walk with Jesus. So first of all, this idea that Jesus changes us through confrontation. That seems well, pretty obvious from the text, actually. Look there in verse 1. Remember who this Saul is, breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he goes to the chief priest, the religious leader, and gets permission to go, not just in Jerusalem, but now outside to where these Christians who have been persecuted have fled to so that he can hunt them down and exterminate them. He, he's on his way to Damascus to destroy these Christians, and he's literally knocked down to the ground. And verse 3, as he went on his way, Suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground. Now, there's this brilliant shining light that overwhelms Saul. But what he's really having a confrontation with is the truth. The truth that he's been ignoring and suppressing. He's colliding. He's having a confrontation with a God that suddenly he cannot control and that he does not define. Because Saul had constructed a God in his mind, a, a God that made sense to him, a God that aligned with what he believed, 
He didn't have the God who is actually there and a God who could challenge him. That's why he says in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? See, there's the question. Saul thought that he knew who God was. He thought, for example, that God would never become a human being. God would never set aside the temple and the sacrifices, that the God that he knew could never be weak and vulnerable. And the God that he knew would not love and save non-Jewish people. And because he thought he knew who God was, he thought the Christians had to be wrong, and so he was persecuting them. They had to be wrong because Saul was right, and he knew what God is like. What happens on the road to Damascus is that he discovers that the God that he was worshiping, that he was following, was really a God that he had constructed in his mind, a God that he wanted to be true. Now, most of us today are not going to construct a God like Saul's God. The, the average person, if you ask them, do you believe in God? I mean, most people would say, well, yeah, sure, I, I guess. I mean, if there's a God, he's certainly it's a God of love, a God who accepts everyone, a God who's not judgmental. And as different as that is from Saul's God, I think, in fact, I would argue that's every bit as much a construction. It's every bit as much a God that we have made in our own image. And here's the problem with that. One, of course, we're not dealing with reality, but more practically as well, that God that we make is just a projection of ourselves. And a God whom you've made cannot help you. A God that we make cannot save us, cannot change us, cannot challenge us. Because he's no more than you are. He's no greater than you. He's no different from you. What you need is a God who is real, a God who is greater than you. There has to be a God who tells us things that we don't want to hear. That's what Saul is confronted with. A God who can contradict you, a God to whom we have to bow the knee, a God to whom we've said, I accept you, even though I don't fully understand you, even though there are things about you maybe I don't even like and I can't make sense out of, but I know that you're there and I know you're real. You need a God who is more than just a product of your needs. And when you really encounter that God like Saul did, it challenges you. It pushes you. It stretches you. You sense that there's a, a God who's dealing with you and telling you things that you maybe even don't want to hear. Things that maybe confuse you or upset you. Things about yourself that you don't like. Maybe he's even telling you things about himself that you don't like. Now you've got a real God. A God that's bigger than you. And when you treat the Bible as true, if you take it and say, well, okay, let me just, for the sake of argument, assume that this word about God is true, you start to learn things about this God whom the Bible presents, and you automatically get a God that you're not going to like in some ways. Because no matter what century you live in, no matter what culture you're from, the God of the Bible is going to offend you. And he's going to challenge you in some ways. 
Now you've got someone that you know is real because he can contradict you. He, he can get in your face and say you're, you're going the wrong way. You know, years ago, I heard a message on a Christian radio station from a pastor of a, a large congregation in town. And in this message, he was going into great detail explaining how we could know from the Bible that the pipe organ was the instrument best suited for the worship of God's people. Now, okay, I like organ music. I actually have the complete collection of the organ works of J.S. Bach on compact disc. I love organ music. But that's just a preference. If your God shares all your prejudices, if he shares all your preferences, if he has all the same likes and dislikes that you have, it's probably not God. If your God always hates the same people that you hate and condemns the same people that you condemn and votes the way that you vote and is angry at the people that you're angry at in, in the same ways that you're angry at them for the same reasons, you may have a God that you've created. And you need to let God confront you. That's what changes us, is inviting God by saying, God, I, I want to know you, no matter what you need to say to me. I, 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 need, I need you to change me. I need you to confront me. I need you to challenge me. The other positive part of this is when you have a God that's bigger than you, he can also comfort you in ways that a God we invent can't. 1 John 3.20 is one of my favorite Bible verses. If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Now, what does that mean? Our hearts sometimes condemn us. We feel convicted. We feel guilty. We feel wrong. We feel beaten down. But God comes in Christ and says, let me tell you who you really are in Christ. You are loved. I have a purpose for your life. You are forgiven. I delight in you. You are not defined by your sins and your failures and your flaws. And that is impossible for God to do if he is not bigger than your heart. If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. You need, you want a God who is greater than your heart. A God who can both challenge your heart and also pour comfort and encouragement and reassurance into your heart. Where does God challenge you? Where does God confront you? About the things you want to believe about yourself? About the things you're afraid to believe about yourself? Jesus changes us through confrontation. But then Jesus also changes us through reorientation. Through reorienting how we see ourselves and how we see God. There's an interesting thing that happens here. Did, did you notice this? He, he's blinded by this light, and he falls to the ground. Saul says in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told to, what to do. But Saul rose from the ground in verse 8. And although his eyes were open, he saw nothing, so they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he did not eat or drink. 
Now, that's an interesting detail. Why, why would Luke include that? Why would Saul do that? There's one thing that's going on here that I think is significant. And we maybe sometimes hear or think, if you think about this passage, of Saul's conversion being sudden. I'm not sure it was sudden. It was dramatic, to be sure. There's flashing light. There's Jesus speaking from heaven. But I'm not sure that's as sudden as it looks because Jesus doesn't say, okay, Saul, eyes closed and head bowed. I want you to ask me into your heart and repeat after me this prayer that I will pray. What he does is, that's not wrong, but what he does is he plunges him into darkness. He's blinded. And he goes into the city, and he doesn't even tell him what to do. He just says, go into the city and wait until you hear something else. He can see nothing, he's in darkness, and he doesn't even eat or drink. Now, the, the darkness may be meant to highlight for Saul the spiritual blindness that he's been walking in. But I think there's something else going on here with that, that element of fasting. There is nothing for him to do but think and reflect. He's not eating, he's not drinking, he's not working, he's not going anywhere, he's not writing anything. He is in darkness alone with his thoughts. And I think that's what God uses to reconstruct his understanding of God and himself, to reorient him. He, he has to rethink his whole understanding of God. Because again, remember back in verse 5, this great question that comes from Saul's mouth, Who are you, Lord? He's had to acknowledge that he had an idea of God in his head that was not real. It didn't fit with this God that was confronting him. So now he has to go back in his mind to the, to the scriptures and all the things that he's believed about God and put things together in a way that he's never thought of before. You know, for example, as a, as a Pharisee, Saul would have rejected the idea that the Messiah would be cursed and rejected. The Messiah is going to be blessed, he's going to be victorious, and, he, and he's going to come in power and lead us into victory. Jesus on a cross saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was clearly cursed and abandoned by God. That cannot be the Messiah, and yet that's the very person that is confronting him as the Lord of glory. And so Saul has to figure out, what do I do with this and who God is Jesus was raised from the dead in power and glory, so that means he was blessed by God. So, so that must mean on the cross, he wasn't being cursed for his own sins. On the cross, he must have been cursed and forsaken for somebody else's sins, for, for our sins, for my sin. And, and, and I'm sure he must have been going back through the scriptures and his understanding of God and seeing things that, that he hadn't seen before, and they all start to make sense. You know, he believed in a strong Messiah who saved righteous people who got their act together and followed after him. And those were the people that God blessed. But what if God sends a weak and a suffering Messiah who dies on the cross for our sins? And, and, and so the people who are saved are those who are strong enough to admit that they are weak and that they need salvation. And, and then you can be saved by grace and not by your efforts. And when he understood that the Messiah had been cursed for us, that he'd been abandoned, and everything suddenly starts to look different. The idea that God's kingdom, that his 
reign of peace and joy and glory and restoration and, and flourishing doesn't come about by getting power and exercising it and crushing enemies. It's a kingdom that's shaped by love and self-sacrifice and humility. It's not eye for eye, but turn the other cheek and bless those who curse you and love your enemies. Saul is persecuting and killing Jesus' followers. He's trying to stamp out Jesus' name and undo everything that Christianity stands for. And how does Jesus respond? Not by blasting Saul. With patience and kindness and gentleness. And Saul suddenly starts to realize that means as God's people, I'm never called to hate or persecute or condemn other people. And in the history of Christianity, we have to acknowledge there have been Oh, shameful example after example of Christians getting power and turning into the persecutors. And, and it seems like a culture that's increasingly hostile to Christ and to the message of the gospel and his truth, it's tempting to think that, man, if we could just get control, we could make things go the right way and we could get the bad people out of power and we could be in charge. And and Saul is learning that Christ is not looking to get power to compel or control or condemn others. Christianity is what it looks like in Stephen's death. Laying down his life and praying for those who, is, who were killing him. God changes us by, re by reorienting us, by, by rethinking who God is and, and also rethinking who who we are. I mean, who is Saul? He's a, he's a Pharisee. He is literally the model citizen of God's people. The Pharisees were, were moral. They were righteous. They were upstanding. They were zealous for God. They knew the Bible backwards and forwards. They prayed how many times a day? They, they tried their best to obey everything that God commanded them to do. And yet, he suddenly had to realize it's possible to obey God at a surface level. And whether or not he'd heard Jesus teaching about the Sermon on the Mount, we have. And, and Saul is probably, for the first time in his life, having to reckon with the fact that, okay, not murdering people goes beyond just not literally taking someone's life. And not stealing apparently goes beyond just not taking other people's property. And at some point, Saul, who is been trying to build a self-image on the idea that I am faithful to God and to his law, must have said, I'm supposed to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I don't, and I can't in myself. And his whole basis of identity is, has, has unraveled. Remember back, we saw in chapter 6 and 7 how Stephen gives this beautiful message of who Jesus is and what he's come to do, and, and as they are killing him, He's praying for their forgiveness. And Saul was standing there. And I wonder if in these three days of darkness, is, is he's also reflecting back on what he saw and what he heard from this first Christian martyr. I don't love like that. I don't forgive like that. I don't, I don't pray for my enemies like that. And God in his mercy 
does the same thing for us. He changes our self-conception. He, he, he frees us from this trap and this prison of building an identity around our achievement and our accomplishment and our education and what other people think of me and how good a parent I've been or how good a co-worker I've been or, or how successfully I've run a company or, or how well I've obeyed. The very best thing that you could do is let God unravel that in your life and, and change you because he reorients you and how you see yourself. What brought Saul to see the beauty of Jesus was the recognition that he needed a savior. That's what was happening in the darkness, I think. That, that he was forced to rethink who God is and who he is and have to realize, I am, I am not competent. I am not capable of obeying God's commands like I thought I was and like I ought to. I need a savior. Do you see it? Christianity is not just a moral structure. It's not a set of rules to obey. No, meeting Jesus challenges our self-righteous morality, our pride. Saul was humbled. He saw that he was on the wrong path and he couldn't save himself. And there's nothing better that God can do than to take you to that place and for you to invite him to See what you need to see about yourself and about him. To be changed by Jesus means that our understanding of God is reoriented and, and our understanding of ourself is reoriented, so then what's left? To be changed by Jesus in that way gives a new foundation for life, a, a new identity. Jesus changes us through re-identification. Confrontation and reorientation and now a re-identification. This, this statement of Jesus in verse 4, he hears the risen, glorified Christ saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And there's a couple of things here in what Jesus says that changes Saul's identity, re-identifies him. When Jesus calls out to Saul, there's something significant going on here. Did you notice? He calls his name out twice. When we hear that in English, I think it tends to sound to us like exasperation, right? Like that's what you say to your roommate or your spouse or your kid or your coworker when you're frustrated with them. They're not paying attention. Jeff, Jeff, right? You're not listening. That's not what this is like here. To, to repeat someone's name in the Bible is often a personal way to talk to someone with longing and affection. It comes from a place of profound care and love. Martha, Martha, you're worried about so many things. And I want you to be free. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I love you, how I've longed to gather you to my heart. And Saul hears that in the voice of Jesus. It is the first thing he hears from Jesus' voice is his name twice. Saul, Saul. And he repeats that in every retelling of this story in the book of Acts two more times. Because Saul realized, I think, in that, that though he was the harshest critic, the most violent persecutor, the greatest offender against the Lord, Jesus pursued him in love. Oh, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Don't you know that I love you? 
Don't you know that I long for you to be free and alive and joyful? Don't you see how I've been working in your life? Can't you hear me calling you to something greater and bigger and better? And when you begin to see your life that way, through the lens of God's love and care and pursuit for you, it it changes you like nothing else. There's a new intimacy with God. You're defined by a relationship with the God who loves you. And second, there's a new identity in Christian community. And, And we'll get into that more next week in more detail as Saul is enfolded into Christian community. But there's an implication here. When Jesus confronts Saul, he says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, how in the world is Saul persecuting the enthroned, risen Lord of glory, Jesus? How is that even possible? Because he's persecuting Jesus' brothers and sisters. It gets to me sometimes. Jesus is saying, when you hurt them, Saul, when you persecute them, you are persecuting me. Because when you become a Christian, one, you don't just get saved in a one-on-one relationship with Jesus. You are saved into a body of believers, all of whom are part of Christ's body, who are brothers and sisters to Jesus and to each other. Jesus is saying, I am living by my Spirit in every Christian. And that means if you want to get to know Jesus, you can't just get to know Him on your own just by talking to Him and praying with Him. You have to be involved in the community of God's people because if you're going to see Jesus, it's going to be in the face of His brothers and sisters. The community of God's people. But it also means when you're suffering as a follower of Jesus, particularly when you're suffering because you're a follower of Jesus, because you're walking faithfully with him, you are not going through it alone. You are never going through it alone. Jesus is with you. When he says to Saul, you are persecuting me, he's telling his followers. He knows I know your sorrow and your suffering, your longing and your loneliness. And I bear it with you. I bear it for you. I bear you up in the suffering and the sorrow. And you're part of a community that helps you bear those burdens together. Jesus says, To Saul, he's persecuting Jesus himself because he's persecuting Jesus' brothers and sisters. That's how closely he identifies with you and with me as his dearly beloved children, as his friends. That is a radical, wonderful re-identification that says who you are and who your family is and the people who you are a part of and that you belong to, no matter where you've come from, no matter what your background, no matter what you've done. It also tells us, I think, we should never despair of anyone's conversion. If God can convert Saul, 
He can change and convert your loved one, your friend, your neighbor, your coworker, that person you're reaching out to, that person where you keep trying to open up conversations and trying to point them to Jesus, and it doesn't seem like it's, anything's happening. But God is at work. If Saul can be converted, then there's hope for you and for me. And if Saul needed to be converted, then you and I certainly do, because he had a moral standing far above any of ours in our own flesh. You know, I heard the gospel preached probably in all kinds of ways. The good news that God loved me and sent his son to die for me, to reconcile himself to me and give me a new life. I'd heard parts and versions of that over and over in my life, many times and in many ways. But for some reason, in God's mysterious providence, one night, it suddenly was real to me. It came home to me. It made sense. And it suddenly became the best and the most hopeful and most important and most profound life-shattering thing that I had ever heard or could ever hear. I felt the weight of my sin and, was, and the guilt of it and, and at the same time the wonderful freedom of God's forgiveness and love that he would give his son because he loves me that much. If Saul needed to be converted, then we certainly do. And if Saul could be converted, then there's hope for you. There's hope for the people you're trying to reach. And that's the ongoing pattern in our lives, that God changes us as he confronts us, as he reorients us, and as he re-identifies us with himself. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you are a God who is greater than our hearts. And sometimes it's uh, painful as a process. The best that can ever happen for us is for you to come into our lives in a way that shows us we need to rest in you and, and nowhere else that can bring life and change. And we thank you so much that by the power of your spirit, we are changed. We can be changed. And I pray that that would be true for everyone in this room, everyone hearing this, that they would be converted, changed, confronted, reoriented, re-identified in knowing you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.